Hello and welcome back to the Yellow Light Go podcast. I'm Noah. I'm Jacob. And this podcast is for creatives and the people who have to deal with them. Uh, we're in the middle of a season about the values of creative people. And uh, on last episode, we talked about learning um, and how learning is sort of unique in the lives of creative people because we are sort of born into our careers or our callings, understanding that we have to be lifelong learners. That mastery doesn't come, uh, that mastery doesn't come except for at a lifetime. Right, right. right. Like, and, and the other side of that coin is being a lifelong teacher. Right. I once heard Derek Sivers, founder of CD Baby, amazing uh, TED Talk guy, say that the best way to really internalize something is to teach it as mm -hmm. soon as possible after you've learned it. Mm -hmm. and um, I've heard that, uh, too, similarly, my best friend growing up, his father was a doctor. Yeah. And uh, he basically, after he retired, he learned how to, uh, he basically became a gourmet chef, mm. uh, learned how to sail, uh, started uh, his own winery, uh, making wine, all these things. Um, just a very, very fascinating Captain Kirk as we called him, Kirk Reed. Uh, and he, I remember him telling me in high school, he said, uh, you know, what I learned in medical school was uh, if you want to know something, you have to learn it, you got to do it, and then you got to teach it. Right, right. So we thought the best way to kind of follow up on our conversation from last time about, you know, our perspective on being a world-class learner would mm -hmm. be to talk about how do you become a world-class teacher, right? right? So we'll start. Or at least I'll start. My dad's, my dad was a guitar teacher for, for a long time. Yeah. It was basically, it was one of his only gigs. And he used to teach 30 students, 30 hours a week, 30 hours of teaching a week, all private students uh, at a guitar shop in Napa called All-Star Guitars. And uh, he developed his own syllabus, uh, written syllabus, written syllabus, which, uh, you know, in the 80s, you actually had to type up right on this thing then, called a typewriter a typewriter there was, it was literally a typewriter and uh, then he had to Google take it. it take it uh you know and have drawings made take it to a zero like a place where you could xerox these things and um and i remember he taught his students based on uh popular songs from the time and, uh, his mm -hmm. first song was a song called feeling groovy by yeah. uh simon and garfunkel this is, yes. awful, this is an awful song. I hate this song. One of their worst. Oh, it's terrible. And I didn't, I mean, I didn't understand it, but the, there were the three easiest chords to play were the three chords in this song. Yeah. And there was a little bit of technique in the right hand, not a lot. And uh, basically he, his entire syllabus was built around teaching technique through repertoire. It was like he intuited that in order for uh, students to be excited about playing an instrument, they needed to be playing songs that they recognized. Songs sure, and, absolutely. I mean, maybe songs that they like. Obviously not songs I like in that particular case, but I came along 30 years later yeah. learning how to play guitar. Yeah. Has that been your experience as a, as a teacher or, at, you know, at trying to be an effective teacher? Do you absolutely. Find that that works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very, it's a lot more rare in classical music. You mm -hmm. know, we have these syllabi and these method books that are sometimes centuries old, right? right. And, but for me, uh, one of the first questions I would always ask my students is, what's on your iPhone? Uh, what's in your playlist? Mm. And I think the most important part of that is that we want to make sure that, that we're modeling for students passion for learning, passion for the subject. Right, and right. so it needs to be music that we're passionate about, but right. we also need to be kind of discover that passion for, you know, if, if, if that, that the kids have mm. for the music they're listening to uh, and be excited with them, you know, to learn uh, whatever they're into. Right. You know, it's about kind of getting into, as opposed to it being about our ego and, all of the things we want to teach. I, I think good teaching always starts from that 
vantage from a place, point. From a place of passion for a, a subject, whatever the subject is. Yeah, yeah. So it's lighting that spark. Y- you right? couldn't be you couldn't be in a, as effective as a teacher if whatever subject matter you're trying to teach is not exciting to you. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I, I would say that um, I, I've worked with some unbelievably knowledgeable, competent uh, people, um, mm-hmm. and often the level of knowledge they possessed uh, had nothing to do with how effective they were in terms of what was actually being learned and absorbed by the students. Mm-hmm. Um, often it, teachers can uh, bloviate and bloviate you know, as be, we are doing right now. Exactly. Yeah. Because they're so excited because mm-hmm. they're really into their own information. Mm-hmm. But if they're not modeling the passion for whatever subject, you know, for whatever the students are into, mm-hmm. um, right. then, uh, you know, the buck kind of stops there. Yeah. Well, yeah. Even if, even if I don't see the excitement of a teacher or if I'm excited about a subject that a teacher is not excited about, I, in, I'm not talking about in school. I'm talking about trying to learn something like from my older brother. Right. Right. Um, when I was learning how to play guitar, mm-hmm. uh, I remember my older brother had a friend, uh, who came and stayed with us. Yeah. Uh, kicked out of his house. Adams, uh, I, you know, our, my mom and my stepdad were very generous people. Of course you can, you know, sleep on Adam's floor and we'll get you to school on time. His name was Delaney and he uh, was a guitar player. I remember him being incredible. He was, he played uh, like Jimi Hendrix, yeah. which I had just started to get into. And he was really good at it. He could bend the strings and he could bend and then play with a little vibrato at the top of the bend. And I was like, you're, you're a golden God. Uh, and I remember him, uh, I, I asked him to teach me how to play Hey Joe, which is not uh, the most difficult. I would say it's probably like entry-level Hendrix is this song called Hey Joe. But still Hendrix. But still Hendrix, yeah. right? Not easy, but, um, and I, I had been playing for maybe six months at this at the time. You know, I was, I was probably uh, almost adequate to the task of playing this, but not quickly by any stretch of the imagination. It's not like now somebody shows me a lick and it takes me a couple minutes, right? Right. After a long time of playing guitar. Right. So I sat down on my brother's floor, and he was sitting on the bed, and uh, and I said, "Can you show me how to play a Hey Joe?" And he played it, boom, do, boo, do, do, boom, and just plays it through once, in time, like, like full tempo, <laughs> and I just was amazed, you know, like look at it, wide eyed, sitting on the floor, like this is, could you show me again? And he played it again, and uh, I was like, "Okay, could you do it again, but just the first part?" And he looks at me with squinty eyes, and he does it. But he plays the whole thing again. And I was like, okay, okay, just do it again for me. And he looks at me, just completely deadpan, and said, you will never be as good at guitar as me. And I think he was trying to say, don't waste your fucking time, kid. Just leave me alone. I think that's what he was trying to say. I would call that bad teaching. Yeah, that's not an example of, that's not an example of good teaching. Um, but in my mind, I didn't, it didn't even register. It didn't hurt my feelings. I didn't feel bad. I was just like, I mean, okay. I, I mean, I believe you, but I still want to learn how to play this thing, yeah. right? But that stuck with me. Obviously, it's a thing that I think about a lot. It represents a lot of my, uh, the, 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 the fire that drove me, which was uh, my competitiveness. Yeah. And despite his best efforts to deter me, I, I, like, I wasn't deterred. It, like... There was nothing he could do to prevent me from getting this knowledge, whether it was from him or from somebody else. And I think about that now as a person who has taught, who still teaches on a regular basis, even if it's not, you know, taking students and, you know, talking about teaching the people around me things that they need to know for the work we do together. And I realized I am pretty sure that nothing is ever actually taught, that things are only learned, that we are all of us in every sense of the word self-taught. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think there's something that I, I've seen so many times is that a, a teacher will insist on something with a student. Maybe it's a fix in their technique, you know, keep your finger a little higher or your shoulder a little lower or whatever the case may be. Right. And tell the student that over and over again, only to have that student finally get it upon hearing it from somebody else, you know? Oh, my God. Said in a slightly different way, in a slightly different... So Mm -hmm. I I would say, at best, 
a teacher can really only plant a seed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so um, a lot of teaching, unfortunately, uh, can be ego. It's a teacher trying to maybe be excited about what they have to teach, but uh, that can get in the way of uh, of really listening. Right. Okay. Uh, so the, let's say the first the first element to being a good teacher is okay. uh, cho- element teaching number one teaching the things you're excited about. Right. And that's yeah. kind of what we got yes, to first for and, sure. And now we're getting to a place where it's like teaching what the student is excited right. about. Yeah. And so we have to find uh, sort of a, an overlap in that Venn diagram, mm-hmm. right? That's of information that because you know otherwise, if we're trying to teach something that doesn't want to be learned, it is just ego. It is. It's uh. it's pure ego. Mm, well, I am guilty of that in many areas of my life uh, because I think that all the knowledge I have is useful. Yes. Yeah. I mean, our, our, in, in the previous episode, we talked a little bit about how sort of ego is the enemy and how, mm-hmm. you know, we need to sort of transcend our ego, that, this sort of spiritual process, right? Mm-hmm. Because the only way we can possibly improve is facing ourselves in the mirror or on the recording or right. whatever mm-hmm. it is. Right. And you know, deal with this thing that we've wrapped our whole lives around, which mm-hmm. is like, I am a great musician, I'm a great guitar player in your case, or a great singer, or a great songwriter. Or mm-hmm. In my case, it's, you know, a great cello player, or a great improviser, right? Right. So, it, j- just in the same way, from the teaching perspective, when we flip that around, ego is also the enemy in the sense that we completely overvalue our own information uh, and our own, um, our own expertise to the point of really ignoring the student, um, okay. really ignoring the student in mm-hmm. the sense of either what's the, what they're passionate about, right. you know, which is what we started this conversation with, mm-hmm. or in much more subtle but no less important ways, you know, like how how they learn, um, what uh, uh, what their process is like. Right. And also, and that has to start with just accepting, like you said, the premise that our main job is to get someone excited about something. Right. But, like but at the end of the day, everything mm-hmm. is self-learning, you know, and th- there's kind of a letting go in that, you know, for <laughs> that a lot of teachers have problem uh, doing. In the Old Testament, in, uh, in Proverbs, it says you should train up a child in the way that he should go. Mm. And uh, many Christians interpret that as raise your kid in the church, right? Oh, teach yeah. him, like bring him, teach him Jesus. Uh, but uh, apparently, the like a better translation, better translation is uh, you should teach a child according to his bent. Yes, um, which is you know sort of based on the child's uh, desires, based on the child's aptitudes. That's how you should train him up. Right, um, which that's ancient wisdom. Uh, and yet it's still difficult for us to do now. I mean, especially you think about the way our school system is brought up. I mean, everything is general education. Yeah, it's a very, and yet a very narrow view of intelligence, right? Right. Academic intelligence is like it's pretty much Mm. rote memory, you know, the whole training future factory workers kind of vibe. Well, we're talking about being... uh, lifelong teachers and as musicians often we are called to teach beginners we're to teach younger people mm-hmm. um you know and i i guess i have always felt a passion for that there was i saw uh, a sign once it was a meme it's a picture with a letter board and on the letter board it said uh, be who you needed when you were younger mm. and i uh, love that resonated with me so much because i know who i needed when i was younger I, I know who wasn't there and not that the people around me were inadequate to that task. It's just that I didn't have certain people that I knew, uh, could have made me better. Yeah. Yeah. When, uh, Robert and I, uh, founded, uh, our music school string project mm-hmm. Los Angeles, which was kind of the first school that was really dedicated to creative string playing Our mm-hmm. our kind of modus operandi was, um, the school that we would have wanted to attend when we were, 14, right. you know, mm-hmm. and one of one of the first things when we were kind of brainstorming on that we came up with um, was when we went to our classical 
violin or cello teachers, they didn't ask us what we were listening to. Right. You know, right. they didn't, mm-hmm. there was never even uh, uh, a notion necessarily of, of what we might be passionate about. It was just assumed that we were uh, passionate about the exact same music that our teachers wanted to teach. Right. And right. it's not like there were, it's not like there are a hundred cello teachers in your town, right? Like growing up when you first started teaching cello, it's like you're going to go to the cello teacher. Right. 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 <laughs> it's like it was the same thing in uh, high school in Napa. There weren't that many voice teachers. Right. There was one, and it was the wife of the conductor of the Napa Valley Symphony. Yeah. Her name was Lisa Raboy. I don't know if she was a good teacher or not. I took voice lessons with her and I learned some things, I remember, but I don't know if she was a good teacher. She was just the teacher there. Yeah, this is the other side of the coin, right, mm-hmm. of the learning teaching kind of paradigm that we've been talking about is that the only way for you to learn what good teaching is is to be a student, right, oh, and right. to be a mm-hmm. student of many teachers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I often, one thing that I always talk to my students about, and I think it's really important, you know, just for having a perspective on lifetime learning, we talked about finding your guru last time, but I think it's equally important from a teaching perspective and also from a student perspective uh, to have many, many teachers Mm -hmm. uh, on the same subject in your life. Otherwise, there's no way, (laughs) it's very, very difficult to discern Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. uh, what teaching itself actually is. Wow. Um, And so we as, you know, teachers growing up, we should surround ourselves with other teachers too, right? So like as we are learning, we should watch other people teach. This is so important, Noah, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, and similarly, you know, as a student, you know, as I said, we need to make sure that we that we pursue uh, many, many gurus, because it, I find that at least in, in my world, I don't know if it was this way for you, and this is an extension of the ego of teachers, teachers can be very possessive, like they'll have the same student for, you know, six, seven, eight years, all the way through middle school and high school, for example, yeah. before they go to, or my teacher in college, uh, one of my teachers was very possessive of mm-hmm. their students and uh, didn't want them to, didn't want me to go to another teacher scale class or, right. you know, sit in on mm-hmm. the violin teacher's lessons. And I was always kind of shocked by that. Mm. Um, and it, whether it was coming from a good place or not, I think ultimately it's, that is ego. Yeah. Yeah. That's destructive. Yeah. Uh, I've fired more than one student for sure. Um, and I fired students because they weren't interested because I hated being around them. Um, I've fired students because I taught them all that they were going to learn and, uh, they were wasting their money. Right. I mean, and my time, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. This happens in sports all the time, right? They Mm -hmm. say the players have just kind of tuned the coach out at a certain point. Right. That happens in in ensembles, too. If the conductor is not communicating information that's useful, you tune the conductor out. Right. Yeah. So, my golden rule generally is I don't work with students for more than three years, Mm. four years. And I think that's even stretching it with most teachers. In my experience, I've probably had. 50 or 60 cello teachers at this mm-hmm. point. I mean, you know, at least for a couple lessons, everyone right. from, you know, Yo-Yo Ma to people that uh, no one's ever heard of. Right. Uh, and in general, I think most teachers have about three lessons in them. Three wow. good lessons. Three good lessons. May, yeah. Spread yeah. out over four years and the rest is just bullshit. Pretty much. Wow. Um, so I would say, I would say <laughs> maximum... Two to three lessons, and I yeah. Yeah, I don't like using <laughs> maybe not bullshit, but just in terms of people's uh, people's ability to um, uh, absorb mm-hmm. really comes into play here. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I find most teachers have just a couple of lessons in them as far as like real principles, you know, bedrock things. You know, when it comes down to what they really believe in, you know, what they really have to offer. Got it. There are yeah. exceptions, and, but but then and probably to understand all of those, you know, those deep core values. It takes working with other teachers, oh, <laughs> telling sure, you the right. same things in yeah. different ways, yeah. and it probably also takes a bunch of other information to get there. Yeah. So yeah. here's something that I'm learning lately, um, because I uh, I've always seen myself sort of as a teacher, uh, as a as a as a mentor mm-hmm. um, for whoever 
I saw being like talented and excited. Whoever was talented and excited, I wanted to cultivate them. Right. And and assuming that they weren't uh, as far along as I was, whatever, yeah. whatever that was. Um, you know, in high school, the younger classmen or, you know, later on uh, artists who hadn't recorded anything yet, things like that. And I have, uh, I had to develop a skill set of uh, being a vocal producer. Uh-huh. And so being a vocal producer is about uh, coaching a good performance uh, while the red light is on. And in order to do that, you have to do all kinds of weird manipulative things. Um, you have to speak. Uh, you have to be excited at all times. You sure. have to be a positive, forward thinking. Sometimes you got to get hard with them. But for the most part, it, there's a lot of like uh, sleight of hand where you tell them to focus on one thing because you're trying to fix something different. It's uh, it's complicated. And because it's complicated and because it's such a difficult thing to do effectively, you have to spend a long time learning how to do it. Right. And it's a lot of trial and error. I got a lot of vocalists who cried in the booth because yeah. I didn't communicate well. So I tried to become an excellent communicator, not just for that reason, but I now find myself, as I'm doing right now, telling three stories to get to one point. And there are a few people in my life who have told me very recently, my girlfriend being one of them, uh, John Kaplan being another, uh, don't assume that I need you to tell me what my emotional context is for what you're telling me. Right. Right. Don't assume, just fucking spit it out, dude. Yeah, yeah. Well, that kind of brings me or brings us to, I think, one of the, the main cruxes of this podcast. A couple of points, a couple of things that we've learned as creative artists in our journey as lifelong teacher learners right. up to this point. Point number one you're absolutely alluding to right now, which is uh, it's always your fault, virtually always, <laughs> as a teacher. Uh, it's not yeah. the student's fault. When mm-hmm. we blame a student for not practicing, not being motivated, not, you know, we learn nothing the second we blame a student. Wow. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I think it's really, really the process of learning through teaching, and it's mm-hmm. an old cliche, you know, I learn more than my students, you know, um, is learning from our our failures, right? And mm-hmm. it, that's all about, to me, like a golden rule of, of my teaching uh, has always been, it's always my fault. Um, and that allows me to go back and forensically see uh, where I wasn't really modeling uh, for the student, whatever they needed, uh, whether mm-hmm. it was the process of practicing in the lesson, which we, we talked about in the last podcast, uh, or modeling, you know, the kind of passion, right. uh, that, that I had for, for music, mm-hmm. uh, and for their music and their process. But I feel like that is one of the golden rules of being a lifelong teacher learner what are some of the other things that just kind of if we could just reel off a few i uh, uh here's a, one that's real important to me uh mm-hmm. when i'm working with people is that don't start with uh don't start with jargon don't start with words uh that people haven't that you don't have a definition for or an, an agreed upon definition for right so uh as an example my dad uh was teaching a master class for uh worship bands right yeah. and uh so we wanted to talk to the uh, students about blend right and he assumed he assumed you know he started with the word blend he's like blend now we're gonna work on blend mm-hmm. as if everybody knew that and wanted to know what that was right. um and i you know as i was reading through the syllabus I, I realized that 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 was going to be ineffective and uh as i he and i had a conversation about it and I had a, a long explanation for why he needed to flip that. He needed to reverse it. Um, and in our conversation, uh, I was able to explain that if you talk to them about what they're doing first and help them achieve it, and when they achieve it, then you attach the word blend to it, Yeah. then all of a sudden that word has a, a solid and hard definition that everybody agrees on. Everybody knows what that feels like. And now when they talk about blend, they also know how to get there. Right. 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 Um, and then here's another interesting point from that uh, little anecdote. I called my dad after the master class and I asked him, um, 
you know, how it went. And he said, you know, you gave me the most valuable bit of information in our conversation the other day. And I was like, what was that dad? Like ready for him to tell me that he got what I was saying. And he said, it's, you called it a masterclass. It never occurred. It never occurred to me. I thought I was, you know, that was the thing. I used one word and that was his whole takeaway. Yeah. What's being taught? What's being learned? What's, yeah, exactly. What's being communicated really, right? Right. So that would be my, that would be the first thing for me is, you know, when teaching, um, make sure that there is uh, something that needs to be defined before you use a word. Really, to me, that takes us to the idea of having the smallest possible increments between each step in a lesson plan. Okay. Because... I think the issue with having jargon, right, is you're asking a student to make an intuitive leap. Okay, yeah. And the minute you ask a group or a single student or person Mm -hmm. or in your own learning to make an intuitive leap, that's where bad habits, frustration, all of these things tend to uh, fester. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's like when you're trying to learn a new skill and uh, of any type, um, and and I I think that's that's really critically important. Mm. Um, it, if a teacher asks a student to, you know, play with a light touch or play more legato, you know, that might be an example of jargon, more mm-hmm. more legato, for example. Right. Um, if the student doesn't know what that means, uh, there are all of these intuitive leaps that the teacher is just assuming they can make. Right. Right. Like they know what that word means. Mm -hmm. They know the technique that it takes to create that. They can, they have a musical imagination for how that's really supposed to sound as opposed Mm -hmm. to how they sounded a minute ago. Yeah. And so all through that process of kind of bearing down on that, the student is repeating things badly over and over and over again, Mm -hmm. getting more frustrated Mm -hmm. till eventually maybe the teacher gets down to brass tacks and says, wait a minute, can you just lift your finger a little higher? Right. And then maybe they can get that and they build it up. Whereas if you start from the bottom of that pyramid, mm-hmm. you know, what's the, the easiest, right. most definable, most jargon-free thing they could have started with, which mm-hmm. is just lift your finger a little higher. Right. The student probably can do that, right? Mm-hmm. And then next step and next step. It's the same commands, but the order in which those commands are given mm-hmm. is everything. And I, it's amazing right. once I completely realized that as a teacher, not only did it change the moves I was making as a teacher, but it changed the moves I was making in my own practice. Mm, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it really, really did because I could go back and see where I was trying to make a leap, where I wasn't quite going step by step, where, ste- where step three could have been a little closer to step two. And mm. I kind of, I cranked my metronome up 50 BPM, you know, because my ego decided, oh, I, you, you got this. Right. That's where I started developing that bad habit, mm. you mm-hmm. know. Uh, and so I think understanding that from the standpoint of just this is actually how our brain works yeah. uh, at, its, at its best takes a little more patience to build that, uh, to build that up from, from, from scratch. But it right. really is the secret. Um, also, it prevents us from uh, getting upset, right? As teachers, if we're trying to convey information, right, and if you know, if we're going to take it for granted that we do only learn in a state of pleasure, right, we'll just assume that's true it for is. this the point of this yeah, conversation right now. <laughs> 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 um, then uh, we have to be. Uh, we have to be positive people. We can't be Gordon Ramsay. Right, um, right. And, Gordon Ramsay is a horrible, horrible teacher. Uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, may, Despite maybe, how good his information yeah, is it, and how much true. of an expert he is, right? And maybe there are people who do learn well under a whip. But I, uh, in my experience, uh, I tried that on. I tried that on as a music director. I tried to be the asshole music director who was annoyed with people for not paying attention to the right, information right. that I gave them. And what I found out was not that either like either I wasn't important enough for them to take that seriously, like I wasn't Gordon Ramsay enough, or I, I guess it didn't make people want to pay attention to the information. It showed me the it showed me like what I lacked in the information that I gave them because they then very clearly pointed it back at me. 
Right, right. And this is and there's there's even another level to this that I think is important too. We talked about modeling in the mm-hmm. in the last that you know we're not really teaching, we're modeling, right? When you take a student through a process where they can't do it and then you do it again, they can't do it and they can't do it, you're actually modeling for them the idea that music is hard, that learning new things is right. really difficult, right. that they can't do it, right? And of course, not being able to do something isn't fun for anyone, is it? Oh, no. It's not very Awful. pleasurable, right. is it? Yeah. So when you invert that pyramid, you're not only avoiding bad habits, which I think we should talk about too in, in, in just a minute, but we're actually modeling for the student through their own experience mm-hmm. that playing music or learning something new, learning any new skill, you know, whatever we're teaching right. is really hard. We're cementing that. We're making that right. a, uh, mm-hmm. uh, a reality for them. We're a, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Most students, whenever they learn something new, w- well, whenever anyone learns something new, it's really hard, right? Like whenever, like my kid's learning to walk, right? And uh-huh. he's fucking horrible at it, right? <laughs> it's like there's nothing that any of us can do that wasn't really hard when it was new. Sure. Yeah. But yet students, that's not intuitive to a lot of you know young students yet. And so... They see a master or even us performing or playing, mm-hmm. and their first response is, that's really hard. Yeah, and if that, something's that really so hard, hard, what does yeah. that mean? It's like, I can't do that, right? right. Th- those kind of go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And so every time you as a teacher, again, it's your fault, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. start with jargon or, or try to teach th- you know, by forcing the student to make intuitive leaps, whether it's you know words they don't understand right. or commands that mm-hmm. are... You are modeling for them, you know, in through their own experience that, that yeah, yeah, learning this new thing, learning mm-hmm. this new piece, learning this new skill, yeah, this is really hard. Right. I, right. I'm not very good at this. I mean, whatever the and all of that is really, really problematic. But, and what's opposite of that is when you do acknowledge that things are difficult, it actually removes the anxiety from how hard it is. So when you say, well, I would never say something's difficult. Oh to a no! Student, well, ever. think about this, like in uh, as a as a uh, vocal coach, um, yeah. or as a student. You know, when somebody says, "Oh, this is really like that's really difficult," it's like, yeah, it's hard. It is hard, but um, it's like anything else, man. The the more you do it, the better you get at it. Yeah. And it like it's difficult right now, but soon it's going to be easy. And in the only distance, the only distance is the amount of time you put into it. And trying to trying to pretend that it's not hard, um, first of all, takes away the joy of the climb, like the fact that you are going to achieve something big, right? Um, but also, uh, it makes them feel lonely. I know it certainly makes me feel lonely if somebody says, no, it's not difficult, and I'm having a hard time with it. Interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting approach. I mean, I it, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, for, for me personally, I... Uh, I it's I would not or I don't uh, use uh, the word difficult or hard. I, immediately, if if the the student if we're doing something uh, a, a new technique, a new whatever, right. a new piece, uh, I'll play it for them, and I know they're already afraid that it's hard, right. or you know, because mm-hmm. they'll hear this new thing, and maybe they'll see a lot of black eggs on the on the page, a mm-hmm. lot of fast notes, and I'll immediately say, uh, okay, this is new. I'll, I'll use new uh, as a substitute for hard because I don't want to reinforce any of those ideas. Right. But the key, again, like like we've been taught, at least for me, is is we'll immediately start our lesson with the first note or the easiest element sure. of how to start the first thing. And right. it, I, I, then my goal for that first lesson yeah, and the lesson that. after that and after that is mm-hmm. as I'm practicing them and modeling the practicing everything we're going to do is going to be actually easy and I'll make sure it's easy whether it's it, and it's how I break it down right again if we're breaking something down to the smallest increment and this is a massive oversimplification yeah but say it's a crazy fast hard piece mm-hmm. can we nail the first note and if the answer is yes can we nail the first two notes you know, and it really is like that. I want the student literally for the entire process of learning the piece to never experience or to absolutely at the most minimal amount uh, through playing as few notes as possible mm-hmm. or maybe at a much, much, yep. much lower tempo, yep. I got you. the experience of 
making a mistake. And if our lessons are always easy and everything I ask them to do is always easy, mm-hmm. then over weeks and months and years, the effect becomes this piece is easy, music is easy, right? Um, and that is kind of what, at least for me, what I'm trying uh, to model for right, them. Right, right, because uh, the idea that it's difficult uh, is going to uh, distance them from a state of pleasure, right? And you want them to be happy and excited the whole time. And because even if, if they practice badly, if they practice like out of their comfort zone, right. if they mm-hmm. practice too fast, mm-hmm. out of control, it's okay if music is hard. Because you're not very good anyway, and this piece is really hard. So it, it changes their relationship to, to what they're doing. Right. So being afraid to, or not being afraid, sorry, choosing not to admit to your student that playing the cello is difficult, I think is an outright lie. No, no, no. There's no, there's no admitting. We simply, I don't, I would never use the word difficult or hard yeah. in the lesson. Uh, in a lesson, okay. More importantly, mm. as I'm modeling for them in the lesson, they never experience if I'm teaching well uh, and if I've truly assessed how they learn and, they've, and, and they've their never, level. They never experience something that's difficult to do? Hopefully not. As a matter of fact, when they watch Yo-Yo Ma uh, with me or we're, we're, mm-hmm. we listen to music or watch YouTube together, and I think it's important to do because, again, I'm modeling something I yeah. want them to do at home— the lesson in doing that is is that, yeah, playing music is easy. Does it look like Yo-Yo is struggling? Does it look like... Now, I know I'm, I'm not naive. I know that I'm, I'm working uh, against their own preconceived notion. Right. But I don't want them to buy into the fact that music is difficult. I actually don't believe music is difficult. I don't, th- I, I don't actually believe playing the cello is difficult. Well, I, um, I, think, you're, I think you're delusional. Um, on two fronts, one okay. music is really fucking hard, and uh, even uh, music came really easy to me, um, mm-hmm. but it's still difficult, and I'll and I'll tell you why in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and also playing the cello is the hardest of all instruments. Mm-hmm. Jacob, you forgot or you forget that I took a lesson with you. Uh, on no, how to play I, the cello. I, I, do, I haven't yeah, forgotten. No. And so when you talk about when you say you don't use the words difficult, and and if and if you're doing your job well as a teacher, the student never experiences something that's beyond their skill level. That's right. Uh, I remember trying to hold the bow for the first time, and the exercise that you gave me, my hand cramped up, and I was like, first of all, not only is this excessively complicated how to hold the bow, uh-huh. where my fingers were, it felt so awkward and uncomfortable, um, but also I didn't understand the changes you were making on how to hold it. And, uh, also the uh-huh. exercise you gave me, uh, literally, it literally hurt. And so, uh, you're lying right now. No, no. I just gave you a bad lesson by my definition. Okay, sure. So a, but, what a but good lesson but, but what would have looked like, that, what you're I'm saying? just guilty of giving, giving you a bad, and, and okay. believe me, I mean, teaching is a practice, okay. uh, not a science. So, sure. So I've I've given many bad lessons, but I'm assuming and, that you have to start every student like this, right? Does every student goes through this? That no, there are no, like not all at all. I mean, there, okay. there there has to be there there has to be and uh, a world class uh, uh, teacher that would uh, set you up. That you know, and there are teachers who I am not one of them who literally all they do is teach three year old cellists. I have a friend, uh-huh. uh, uh, right. she uses something called the Suzuki method, but all she does is pretty much get paid all day long to teach three-year-olds and four-year-olds how to hold the bow correctly. Uh-huh. And she's been doing it for 20, 25 years, oh. and all she does is go to conferences and watch other you know, masters who are even better than she is at teaching three- and four-year-olds to hold the bow, uh, how to hold the bow. And I can guarantee you that Elizabeth would have given you a better lesson and she would have started from a point that was easy. She would have broken it down better. Mm-hmm. She would okay. have maybe okay. just started with just just where one finger goes on the bow and that okay. might have been the whole lesson. Wow. But you would have experienced um, ease. You would have experienced, oh, I can do that. Oh, I'm going to repeat it. I did it again. 
I did it again, and then maybe there's another increment. But to me, you've just defined bad teaching. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sorry I'm, I no, gave no. you a lesson. But listen, it's a, I, for I, you to say excessively complicated, for example, or any uh-huh. of that, it, here's a good definition of bad teaching. If a student walks away with any of those uh, adjectives mm-hmm. uh, uh, for what they've experienced, uh, it's bad teaching. Uh, straight up. Uh, no question about it. Okay, you just in my you, view. So you just said that, but yeah. uh, I and I guess you kind of explained earlier about like why why that's important. Yeah. Um. And but I I, I think that it's uh, I don't want to say it's disingenuous. Um. But I think that it may not that particular thing may not work for uh, all people and all students. And I say that as a person who needed who uh, well I'll go back to my point that music is difficult. Um, and music is difficult. I mean this word as in hard to do, um, because I have been playing music, um, my entire life. Mm-hmm. Right. My parents were musicians. My mom was a singer. My dad was a guitar player. Got it. Gigging in the goddamn womb. Yeah. Right. Um, and I still play music every day professionally on giant stages and small stages. You do. And every time, and every time, uh, I don't get it right. Every time there are larger and smaller moments of failure every time like every moment i play is an opportunity to get off the rails to lose focus to do something music is hard to do and i think that and it's not and i i imagine that if music is that all things done uh on a high level um all things that that most things in life are difficult not just at first but to master and the admitting of that and the, the honesty of that that you have with, uh, you know, both your students, um, you know, with people who are young yeah. and people who are old. I think that yeah. the commiseration that happens when yeah. you sit down together and say, you know what, it's really hard, that that, that that gives somebody permission to give themselves grace so that when they approach it again, they're not bad because it's easy and they still can't do it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I actually believe the exact opposite. <laughs> okay. Um, and okay. Let me let me let, let let's and let's let's define mastery because that okay. may be a point of jargon that okay. uh, that that we haven't clearly defined. I believe mastery is something you can do perfectly, mm-hmm. effortlessly every time without thought, and the without thought is really important. Okay. So we've all mastered most of the things we've mastered. We learned before we were able to really think about technique and overanalyze it. Right. The paralysis by analysis. Right. That's so what you're so, saying is yeah. to like too young to. Yeah. Okay. So let's let let's say walking for example. You can walk right. and think about a million other things and be talking on the phone and doing all these things. And at your age uh, and your level of development with walking, uh, you. Uh, rarely trip. Uh, your legs keep moving perfectly. They can change direction, go backward, Got jump it. over yep. obstacles, etc. Right, it. using a fork, all those things. Right. Um, yeah, Kenny Werner's book, Effortless Mastery. I would highly recommend it. Um, therefore, I would say that because we're trying to give people a feeling of mastery. In other words, those things that you mastered are completely easy. You never came to me and said, "God, Jacob, you know what?" Walking is really hard, man. It's just fucking hard. Now, walking requires... Probably because I learned to walk before I had the language for it. Right, right. But even now that you have the language, you would never describe anything you've mastered in that way, and nor would most people. And so the idea is, and and I would would extrapolate from that, I would say that, that I would say that if we're teaching someone properly... Everything we're teaching them is from that mastery place. In other words, if something isn't easy and without thought, you're not ready for the next step in your progression of learning, whatever that is, which is why we need to start from absolutely basic, simple, easy things. Mm -hmm. Because when we get beyond that, uh, we're not actually in that place of mastery. And that's why it's hard. Like, think about uh, Jacob Collier. Have you heard of this guy? No. Who's Jacob Collier? Jacob Collier's like one of the world's most famous musicians. He's yeah, a singer. Don't, don't if I say I haven't heard of him, don't yeah, tell yeah. me he's the most famous anything. Okay. I think he's probably the most famous musician <laughs> in the world. Um uh I okay, uh, uh Herbie Hancock. Okay. I've heard Herbie Hancock I've, I've speak. Heard, okay. I've met Herbie on several occasions. Herbie would never describe music as hard. 
you, people yeah, but who just are, because Herbie doesn't describe it as hard doesn't mean it's not hard. Herbie is also a freaky genius. I've musician, seen right? Yo Yo play. Uh-huh. There, it's it, the, also you're talking about the world's greatest. They're not. Yeah, the we're best, talking about right? masters, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. Do, would, right. do you think that they would say... That they would admit that, that music is difficult? Why would they have to admit anything? They're already masters. It's not like they're trying to prove something. I'm just saying, if you watch them even, forget about what they would say, okay? We can, uh-huh. we can leave that on the table. If you watch Yo-Yo Ma, the reason why I want my students to watch Yo-Yo Ma isn't to prove that, that music is really hard. Yo-Yo Ma proves that playing the cello is easy. That's the whole point, man. That's what the definition of a yeah, virtuoso is. What we talked about finding your gurus and the teachers that right. we look for are not the teachers who were born to it. It's Michael Phelps isn't our swim coach. Yeah, no, no, that's right? true. I'm not saying to study with Yo-Yo Ma. I'm saying because Yo-Yo Ma might not be able to get you to that to that point. I get that. He might not understand the process that got in All there. Right. That's that's not the same. What I'm saying is, is just as an example of not to choose Yo-Yo as your teacher. Uh-huh. That, that you, you make a good point, and I want to be, I want to plant this right. flag because it's important. Yo-Yo Ma, yes, it, uh, virtuosos may not have any idea how they got to the place they got. Just like I might not right. be a good walking teacher, I might not be the best person if someone came to me who'd broken their legs and needed right. physical therapy. I might not right. be the one to get them there, but I am a walking master. And mm-hmm. and the fact that all of us can walk at such a high level is definitive proof mm-hmm. uh, that walking is easy. It just is, man. Now, look, I would say that walking, uh, which requires... I don't, yeah, I don't think walking equates to playing the cello, because playing the cello is not walking, man. You've been playing the cello your whole life, and how I, how I much was do you equating practice? walking to holding the bow. <laughs> I was equating it to holding the bow. Okay. And what I would say right. is, is that is that is that if if you would ask anyone, just just physiologically, if we're going to break this down, and again, uh-huh. we you have preconceived notions because I gave you a horrible cello lesson and ruined your your uh, <laughs> my cello you career ruined it my forever. Career as a cello yeah, I affirmed all your ideas that cello is really hard and holding the bows impossible. Up to that and point, everything in music, everything in music came easy to me at first. Right. Cello was so, the only instrument that beat my ass. So we've definitely uh, established that that was a horrible lesson <laughs> or lessons. But according to your own definition. According to my definition. Not necessarily according to mine. But okay, okay, fair enough. Mm. But what what I would say is is that is that if we can just limit this to holding the bow, because again, when you talk about making music, I think that's almost jargon. Like there are so many things that entails sure, that good. We'll yeah. just just to limit the conversation to a that. Yeah. specific uh, thing. Holding the bow, so walking requires over 70 muscle groups in perfect timing, harmony, and balance Mm -hmm. uh, to even just be able to walk forward. I'm not talking about change pace, avoid obstacles, jump, Mm -hmm. all of the shit that's involved with that, many different levels of coordination, (laughs) all of that. It's at least as hard as holding the bow. Now, we weren't born... Holding a bow, right? And we learn right. later in life and yeah. all, all the shit, man. But I, <laughs> I, I completely reject that uh, holding the bow is any harder than walking. Um, it, it, I, as a matter of fact, I would, you know, yeah, I completely reject that. Okay, right. Now, it's, not, I, it's not hard to walk for a person who's been walking his whole life. But it's hard to walk Let's just for say Heim. for someone who's mastered it. Right. Yeah, but when it's yeah. new, uh-huh. it, it appears difficult. So the job of the teacher is to model an approach in which the process, the myelination of the brain, sorry, too much jargon, uh, let's say the approach is so step-by-step, one tiny increment after another, that the student never experiences anything that's actually difficult. And to me, the ideal practice session Mm -hmm. is one in which I'm patient enough and not egotistical enough in other words, oh yeah, I got this, man. Yeah, I can just speed this up way right, faster. Right. And, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I, I understand. Now I'll be able to do it perfectly every time mm-hmm. as if that were ever possible or true. Um, when that doesn't happen, in other words, the ideal practice session if I'm learning a new piece of music or a new skill on my instrument or any instrument is one in which um, it's easy. The entire thing is easy. Right. Uh, from step A to step, and 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 there's a reason for this, which I, leads us to our next point. Wait, wait, no, 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 which is, I'm not done. I'm which not is done. bad habits. No, no, no. this right? is yeah, and we will talk about bad habits. I think that's important. Yeah, well. yeah, because and because this really, really has everything to do with 
right the negative habit formation okay. right so there's a, a story that Kurt Thompson told me Kurt Thompson is uh, an interpersonal neurobiologist yeah right? very nerdy brilliant dude that yep we know and uh, he talked to me about uh, a psychotherapist psychologist in New York uh-huh. who works with uh, children who suffer from ADD, ADHD, and other developmental disorders, uh-huh. um, and who are acting out because of it, and their difficulties uh, interacting in the world. So they go see this um, this uh, psychiatrist. Yeah, and uh, he in his office is not an office. There's no couch or anything like that. There's a basketball court. There's a batting cage. Um, there is uh, there's wood with hammers and nails and saws. Um, there's places to draw. There's all kinds of things okay. for the kids to do. And the kid comes into the lesson. The parents aren't allowed in. Uh, and he says to the kid, you can do whatever you want. What do you want to do right now? And the kid will choose something. He'll go to the batting cage and he'll swing and he'll miss one and he'll yeah. get frustrated. Yeah. And, and uh, the doctor will say, yeah, hitting balls is hard. But the more you do it, the better you get at it. Kid will move on to the next thing try to hammer a nail into a piece of wood, invariably he'll miss, right? Or it'll go in crooked and he'll say, no, like hammering nails is hard. The more you do it, the better you get at it. And that's his entire practice. And it is exceedingly effective, according to Kurt Thompson, according to this interpersonal neurobiologist, whose job it is to understand the brain. And this is my appeal to authority. The person that I know who's an expert in this says that recognizing that things are difficult is key recognizing it and and uh, to the person who is experiencing it as difficult. Recognizing that is key to the person having a, uh, having a, a better understanding and being able to work through that themselves. Noah, when you approach a task, do you really think you're in an optimal position to learn it, believing that it's really difficult or that it's easy? I just cannot imagine. Yep. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll appeal to my own authority. Uh, Carol Dweck, best-selling author, neurobiologist, works with kids, right. has one of the, the top five most watched TED Talks based on her okay. award-winning book, The Power of Yet, uh, principles that she used to transform uh, entire school systems, like one of the worst underperforming schools in Harlem. Yeah. Uh, so Carol Dweck, uh, the entire point of her world-famous TED Talk was based on a simple experiment. Right. Uh, she had a group of uh, uh, third graders, uh, gave them a math problem that was 7th or 8th grade level. Right. Uh, by the way, I have had all my students watch this video every time I, I worked with any of them in groups or individually. And uh, she simply uh, recorded their responses uh, and were scanning their brains as, as she did so. Mm-hmm. And the difference between the two groups, group A said, oh, I can't do this, or oh, this is really hard. And the other group said, oh, I can't do this yet. Right. Right. And so the group that said, I can't do this yet, their brain was completely alive, blah, blah, blah. There Uh was, you know, neurons were firing everywhere. And the group that said, this is difficult, right? The group that said, like, I can't do this. Uh, their brain almost instantly shut down. Sure. So if I go to something, why would I want to to go to something already believing that it's going to be really hard? Uh, uh, to me, that's not a position of advantage. Like I have found in my no, own it's, teaching. It's not a position of advantage. Right. So I want a kid. If I'm teaching, I don't know, how how young kids have you worked with, Noah? What's I try not to work with kids younger than 12. Okay, so when I was teaching uh, Dal Crow's Eurythmics, which is like music and movement, uh, I got a degree in it. Um, I worked with uh, one of my groups for a half a semester were four- and five-year-olds. And the one thing I learned from that class is it is fucking amazing what kids can learn if you don't tell them it's hard. It's, it's mm. absolutely transformative. I mean, some of these kids, they were able to uh, do things with uh, pitch acuity and rhythmic acuity uh, that I would don't be even the, know what that means. Uh, the, their games involving their ability to perceive notes and rhythms uh, that would be the envy of teenagers. Um, 
this group, by my estimate, were not particularly musically gifted. Right. They weren't, you know, the right. kids of world-class musicians who may might have some genetic advantage. Uh, they were just neighborhood kids in this mm-hmm. class. And r- the, the main approach that uh, my teacher, Dr. Brown, uh, w- kind of instilled in me and that I, I learned, really the only thing I remember from that class is how amazing it was when... Uh, I just didn't tell them that it was difficult. I just said, hey, let's do this. It's going to be fun. I I think we tend to underestimate the gates we put in people's mind when we convince them that it's hard before they've even okay, right. okay, so yeah, started. I want to I want to clarify. I yeah. don't mean you I don't mean convince somebody that it's difficult before you start. That's not what I was saying. Well, they already think it's difficult usually, right? With kids, if you play them a hard piece and say we're going to learn it, right? Or you say this piece Listen, is hard. Listen, that's my learn. that's my thing. I it you don't I'm not talking about trying to prove to somebody that it's difficult before, right? Cuz well, there well, are a lot of kids who come to it and it doesn't ever pers- it doesn't come to them that it's difficult. It doesn't. It comes to them like, "Ooh, I'm going to do this." Like that's what it was for me. R- learning R- how to play, let me finish. Yeah. Learning how to play Jimi Hendrix. I watched him do it. It was way beyond me. It didn't matter. I was going to learn it, right? Mm-hmm. So that's first thing. Second of all, uh, saying that there's a diff- there's a. I don't. I don't understand your point for the first thing. Oh, that I'm. I'm just saying you were motivated. You're saying no. Therefore, I'm, you're no, going to learn. I'm it. saying that it, it didn't matter what somebody said to me. I was going to because you were so right? into Hendrix. Yeah, you were going to learn right. that. Right. So, okay, got it, it. So nobody even ever needed to tell me that it was difficult. Right. Even though I knew it was difficult, they never needed to admit it to me. But if right, I right. got but if I got beat down. By something yeah. that I really wanted, but like it was, but it was hard, and right. I felt uh, discouraged. If I had somebody say it's not hard, I would be. I that wouldn't make me feel better. That's my nobody point. should First say of all, it's hard. They okay. should model that it's not hard. You have to experience that okay. it's not you're, hard. That's you're, that's the teaching to, part. Okay, and then going back to what you said about the TED talk is saying yeah. the different the difference between this is difficult and I can't do this yeah. yet. That's a those aren't opposites. Those aren't opposites. Saying I can't do this. And saying I can't do this yet, those are opposites, right? Admitting that something is difficult when you're in the process of doing it, admitting it to yourself and having a teacher or having somebody who is ahead of me, having experienced it, knowing that for them it was difficult, but they can do it, to me is an invitation, right? I understand the as character building say, element yeah. that, that, that right. you're describing. You're talking about building character, and there's definitely I'm not talking a about time and a place for it. That's not what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, like the teacher transcended, even though it's hard. They got there, therefore I can get there. That's character building, right? Well, it's, it's, well, I would say perhaps it's modeling. Maybe, perhaps, maybe, but maybe that's jargon. Like we more, need to define, yeah, but. more. I'm talking about. Uh, I'm talking about the uh, being effective. Mm-hmm. as a teacher. Yeah. I think that's what we're talking about, right? I hope so. So yeah. being effective as a teacher in my experience, uh-huh. right? On both sides yeah. of learning. Yeah. Uh and so teaching and learning. Yeah. That when I had somebody who was better at me in something, at, at better than me at something that I was learning from. Yeah. When I was going through the process and frustrated with something. Yeah. Uh perhaps cuz they weren't a good teacher in that moment. Yes. Right. Or perhaps I called in a teacher after I was already frustrated with something. Right. And somebody came in and the first thing they said was, yeah, I know this is really hard. I would be like, thank God. Just thank God. But we can get through this. Like, here we go. <laughs> right. As opposed man. to as opposed to somebody else walking in after me getting frustrated and saying, no, nah, man, it's easy. Well, yeah. How I does mean, that of course, make me feel? Yeah, yeah. Right. Nobody. That's that's not good. Te- that's like saying, "Oh, you couldn't do it. It's easy." Yeah, that's, exactly. That, that's, that, that's that's borderline mocking a student. Yeah, exactly. So that's the what? Difference. So so yeah. So what I want to uh, maybe I should clarify. Okay. I don't use the word hard or easy. So I would never tell a student, "Yeah, that's really hard." It's true. Okay, right. But I also would never say that's if they're easy. struggling, "Oh, it's easy." Yeah, of course not. I mean, that's just. You know, that's I, I that's I can't think of another word other than mocking. Right. So those words are just not in the lexicon. Mm-hmm. I I will replace them occasionally with okay. this is new, right? Versus this is an old thing. In other words, it's something you've already done a bunch. You have a lot of reps in, so obviously it may appear to be. But uh, ultimately, uh, what I'm trying to uh, I believe hard and easy is an illusion anyway, and I I I I think it's important to model. Uh, for the students, not to say it's hard or easy, you know, even if I did use those words, I, I don't think they're very effective because what I want to actually do is I want to model the fact that music is easy. So how do we model that? And it's simply the process 
of always starting from where the weakest person in that class, uh, if it's a group class or if it's a private student, uh, can easily achieve that instruction. So again, whether it's a bow hold or a, you know a, a new piece, can we master it? And if we need to break it down this much, the first note, the first two notes, the first bar to a point where literally they can play it easily and effortlessly. And it's the same for my own process of learning. Now, a lot of the time I am forced in my professional life to have to learn more than I really can absorb. You know, say I've got to learn a bunch of things for a bunch of projects all at the same right. time. You played three shows, you play the same songs, but you play them three different ways. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, but it's, mm. uh, sometimes it's 10 times crazier than that, right? Okay. Mm. And I'm not able to do that, and sometimes that will give the impression that, you know, things are, are difficult. But in fact, um, uh, they were not difficult. Uh, I just did not, I just did not learn them in my practicing, in my preparation. Uh, right, because uh, you, I, as the teacher and the learner, as the teacher, you were at fault. That's right? correct. That's, yeah. Yeah, I got that's that. essentially what I'm saying. So, and you so were, yeah. Yeah, and so if a teacher can do that, what, what, what you will do is, is you'll not only model that music is easy, or playing the cello is easy in my case, mm -hmm. but you can build them up from a place of, learning how to practice correctly, because to me, right. that's what, again, flipping it back to the student side, from a student's perspective, uh, a flawlessly productive practice routine would be one in which every single step uh, feels easy, and therefore, you've minimized bad habits, and right. we should we should talk about habits for a minute, because... You know, I, a lot of people, everyone knows that if they're learning a new skill, it's about repetition, right? It, right. it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's a language or, a, mm -hmm. you know, any, you know, you're learning how to cut onions, uh, to go back to our last podcast, right. uh, love the onion cutting, uh, or you're learning how to hold the bow. Um, right. But I think what's often misunderstood is the nature of repetition and that not all repetitive practice is created equal. Uh, far from it. Um, it. There was a really cool study at uh, the University of Texas, Austin, where they had all these pianists, piano students, learn uh, a certain amount of music that none of them had ever seen before. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was uh, a pretty advanced piece. Um, and they were given the opportunity to practice it however they wanted. They could spend two hours on it. They could spend five minutes. They could use, they could practice it any way they wanted it, right? Any way they were comfortable. The only rule was, is when they were done, they weren't allowed to think about it, look at it, whatever. And they had to come in the next day and just perform it 10 times in a row, you know, just to make sure they didn't get lucky. Mm -hmm. And they observed, you know, uh, mm -hmm. and three pianists stood out by miles from the rest. And uh, what they observed was is that the amount of correct repetitions, a thousand times playing it in a row correctly versus, you know, 10 times in a row correctly, had no bearing on how well the music had been absorbed. Okay. Uh, the ratio, like say they played it wrong 20 times but right 40 times okay. had no impact on how well a student learned or how deeply okay. things were absorbed. The only thing that matters at all, apparently, when it comes to repetition and actually absorbing the results, mastering things, is how few times you do it wrong. I'm going to say that again. How few times you do it wrong. In other words, Playing it absolutely perfectly, effortlessly, five times, whether you took it insanely slow or you stopped right before the actual difficult jump or, you know, the, the leap or whatever, without having played it wrong even a single time. In other words, mm -hmm. starting from ease or breaking it down to right. the smallest possible components so that you never actually play it wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Even if it takes longer initially. Mm -hmm is far more effective than starting it from 
you know, a, a, a decent right. clip, for example, right. playing mm-hmm. it a few times wrong and playing it right, because once something is... Instead of just bumbling through it the whole way, not making... It, minimizing the amount of times you play a wrong note right. is more important than... Uh, the amount of times you play the right notes. Right, like a classic axiom one of my teachers used to give, is, or one of his rules, was that if you play something incorrectly, it takes at least 10 times of positive repetitions in a row, right. again, because yeah. if you miss it again, mm-hmm. to overwrite that sort of yeah. negative scripting. And of course, very few students have the patience to do that. But if you bumble two or three or four times just as you get started, mm-hmm. you're internalizing that bad habit to such a high degree because what a lot of people don't know outside of the arts or outside of athletics is that it, ha- habits are phenomenally powerful, right? I mean, all of us, everything we do in a day, whether it's brushing our teeth, there's all these physical habits and we're, mm-hmm. we literally, we would die without our habits in a second, right? We're uh, genetically formed to, you know, uh, be masters of habits, but bad habits are unbelie- unbelievably hard to unlearn, right? So that is why, going back to our last topic, breaking things down to the point where everything is not only doable, but so easy that it would be hard to get it wrong, even if it's just lifting your finger a little higher, you know, something that you could do in your sleep. That's why, as a teacher, making sure that your students, that you aim extremely low with how difficult a piece you're giving your student. That, like right. the idea of challenging a student uh, is, I think, ridiculous. I think what you should be doing is, is looking for the very, very next, because the very next level where maybe just one new technique is added or one new right. increment. Right. Um, that's what a good method book looks like. That's what a good... Um, that's what a good course looks like. Now, again, this takes right. more patience, and it may appear as if we're learning slower, but in fact, we're learning deeper. And that, that is how we minimize bad habits. Right. That is how we uh, combat the idea, the self-fulfilling prophecy that, oh, this is really hard. All right, all right. Uh, I, uh, I'm not willing to fully concede the point, but I will... I'm willing to let it lie. Let's wrestle over it. Because I think this, uh, I actually think that this, uh, all of this, this, uh, the last two conversations about learning and this conversation about teaching, um, none of it matters. Those values don't matter unless you also have the value uh, or believe in the value of mastery. Mm. And so I think that should be our next conversation uh, to discuss mastery. Wow. if, oh, man. if you're up for it, this is my that's one of my favorite subjects. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm pretty sure that's everything anybody ever wanted to hear about uh, teaching. Um, I'm Noah. I'm Jacob. This has been the Yellow Light Go podcast. We'll see you next time. Peace.